Hi, everyone, and welcome to HGTV Obsessed, the weekly podcast about all things HGTV. Hi, everyone, and welcome to HGTV Obsessed. I'm Marianne Canada, executive producer and lifestyle expert for HGTV.com. When I'm not watching HGTV, I'm making crafty videos for HGTV Handmade, or I'm cooking, gardening, thrifting, and renovating my grandmother's home that I bought two years ago. I basically live the HGTV brand every day. I am so excited about today's episode because we're going international. We are hopping over the pond to talk to Lawrence Llewellyn Bowen, host of HGTV's My Lottery Dream Home International and also in possession of the most incredible mane of hair. When I tell you that this was a delightful conversation, I'm really understating it. You guys are going to love him. And after that, we are keeping this international train moving with a conversation I had with Jane Perrone, host of the On the Ledge podcast. We've got a full English breakfast in podcast form, and you are going to love it. So enough from me. I feel like we have got to kick things off with the divine Lawrence Llewellyn Bowen. Well, Lawrence, welcome to the podcast. How are things across the pond? Very, very fine. Things are very much moving in the right direction. And very exciting. I mean, we're, what do we know? Two two more left to film of My Lottery Dream Home. Uh, I'm now in the, the final throes of working out what the hell I'm going to wear for the uh, season finale. There's something wonderful about spending a lot of time with lucky people. But uh, no, it's been a really wonderful series. And I hope you lot enjoy it. I think you will. I think there's something very quirky about the way that the British win things. You know, this I love the way that, you know, your 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 series, the the, the mothership as we like to call it, there's an enormous amount of enthusiasm uh, attached to any kind of win. In literally in Britain, it's kind of like hurrah. You know, it's like we've got a tiny little cocktail stick with a flag on it and very little embracing. Yes. It's very it's very restrained. Very restrained. But I think one of the things that I think people are going to fascinate find fascinating is the the density of the stories of the winners. We're we're meeting people who aren't just winning the lottery or who aren't just sort of you know winning uh, competitions. We've got game show winners, uh, which is fascinating. We have people who've inherited money, which which is lovely. We've got some very very heartwarming stories of parents that have inherited money and then passed the money straight down to uh, children who were kind of in trouble. And of course, the extraordinary density of the housing stock that you find in Britain, I think people are going to really, really, really get under the skin of. Uh, We can't offer the same kind of scale as um, uh, you lovely people in America for sure, as we like to call it. But, you know, there's obviously an enormous amount of age, some of the properties. Um, There's a a, a tremendous history, tremendous story. And I think one of the things that people are going to like is that there's a real focus on the flexibility, ingenuity and creativity of the decorating. So in no way will you be seeing the same sort of house again and again and again. You know, these are We've worked very, very hard to show felicitatious lucky winners, some really very, very different things. And also, I I always wanted to encourage them to push their own envelopes a bit. So they might have a, a, a very rigid idea of the particular beige box that they're after. But um, I felt very keen that they should see a whole variety of uh, different possibilities. And it's quite fun, I think, you know, just watching their reaction. Yes. I mean, it's it's a delightful show. And speaking of beige boxes, you, you are the opposite of a beige box in every way. I was really looking forward to see what you were going to be wearing today. You have this bold, memorable look, whether it's your suits or this incredible mane of hair that you have, or your furnishings and background behind you. How did you land on this signature style? Was it something you worked up to or or did you come out of the womb like this? I very, uh, you know, I, I was, it was a very, very difficult delivery because I came out with all of this, you know, several yards of chintz and, a, you know, Victorian whatnot, my poor mother. No, I mean, I think the thing is that I, I have always felt very happy about making it up as I go along and about making me up as I go along. And I think that that's, that's something that's still relatively unusual in Britain. I think things are changing slightly. I have never felt duty-bound to toe the party line, unless the party line is very pretty, in which case I'm more than happy to embrace it. Um, <laughs> but I, I've always felt very confident that I will be who I will be 
and I will just get on with the job that I want to do. And I, you know, within the constraints of that, within the confines of that, I'm on a constant mission to try and allow other people that same kind of license. You know, I'm, I'm not a very, I, I'm not very kind of aesthetically judgy. I, I like to try and get under the skin of what people are trying to do with what they're trying to do and help them, assist them. And there are plenty of people out there that are beige and boxy. If they really do feel that they're, you know, the, 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 the sum total of all their expressiveness is to be expressed through a beige box, then at it, my friends, at it. But I do feel that there are a lot of people out there that aren't. And I think that there are a lot of people that are frightened about the idea of being themselves and about going a little bit further. I think we live in a world where people fear bad taste so acutely, and yet they feel that good taste is something that is too unobtainable. So they try and settle for no taste. They try and settle for a kind of a neutrality, which is obviously what beige is all about. But here's, here, let me put you off beige. As a term, it's Norman French, and it means very deliberately, the underbelly wool from the sheep, which was always perceived as being a little bit uh, bit softer. So do feel free next time you're shopping for things to ask in the shop whether they have it in a shade of underbelly and see how that goes. Of course, inevitably, you've got to wonder why the underbelly of the sheep is that colour. And um, I know why. And it's not pleasant. You are the perfect host for this show. Um, and it's been so fun to watch it. I was watching the episode with the gentleman who bought a scratch off as he was off buying milk. It really seems like these situations are one in a million. Do you play the lottery? Do you think it's worth it? Uh, well, I think there are plenty of people out there that would say that I play the lottery with taste. The way that I gamble with good taste is more than enough. My wife plays the lottery, actually. She's she's very dedicated at it. She's constantly winning one, maybe two pounds, which obviously opens up all sorts of financial possibilities. But I think it is, you know, I mean, obviously, it's, it's something that, that is very historical. In the United Kingdom, it was something that was brought in by Elizabeth I. So, you know, it's, it's, it's not something that is easily dismissed as far as I'm concerned. I mean, what, what I, I am actually very acutely involved in the lottery. A lot of the projects that I'm working on are almost entirely heritage lottery funded, uh, like the Blackpool Museum that I'm, I'm working on. Uh, I also fronted the lottery advertising campaign. Various uh, of the historical projects that I'm, I'm working on on a constant basis, in fact, just taking on a um, huge manor house in Wales for uh, a charity and all of the funding from that book will be coming from the lottery. So um, I'm a huge supporter of the concept for sure. There's something so optimistic about buying a lottery ticket, right? Deep down, there's some part of you that thinks you're going to win. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think, I think you know, it puts a bit of a smile on your face. And I think that the, the fact that it does help so many projects, it does make so many people's lives better. I think it's a, uh, you know, such an important part of it. It's, it's not like just going to the races and betting on horses. It's, uh, you know, it, it, it does feel as if there's something very creative to it. So I'm so curious, as you're working with these people, what are some of the common things that people that have come into new money want in their homes? The newly wealthy. I know I personally would want and, and we are going to get into your, your gardening later because I have a lot of questions for you. But I would want a beautiful conservatory greenhouse, you know, really a, a showpiece. So what's something you see that people want when they're looking for these homes? Very touchingly, which is something that you'll discover as you go through the program, the first port of call always has a very tender, very sentimental uh, normally family attachment to it. It's about making another family member's life better, or at the very least, their house choice will be informed by the idea of being able to share hospitality with as many of their friends or family as possible. I mean, that's always a very, very big thing with people. And then you get this sort of list of very particular proclivities, like, you know, suddenly they want more parking or whatever. Uh, but one of the things that I found highly amusing is the fact that uh, I would say 98% of my lottery winners want an island unit in the kitchen, which I think is just, wow. Uh, I mean, obviously, in America, island units are obligatory. Every kitchen comes with an island unit. And there have been times when I've tried to sell uh, my lottery winners the idea of a peninsula unit, you know, which is obviously still attached at one end. Oh, no, they're wanting the um, uh, full continental shelf uh, that has cast itself adrift from Pangaea and has found itself right in the middle of the globe. But I think that's funny. I think, you know, there, there, there's always a, every generation has its go-to list of, wow, I've made it items that are in the home. I think our parents, it was um, 
a coach and four because uh, uh, they were growing up under the reign of Queen Victoria. But I think, you know, for a lot of people, it would have been things like, you know, a large refrigerator or a color television or whatever. Uh, but now people want to want an island unit in the kitchen. Well, that's so funny because I actually did a kitchen renovation two years ago and went with a peninsula. So I feel like we're on the same page there. People are very boring. I think they should, you know, want to go for an isthmus or, or a lagoon even, uh, so that you can make it as much like Venice as possible. I mean, why not? So, so back to, I do want to talk about your incredible gardens. Um, I, I love gardening and to me, there's nothing more beautiful than an English garden. And I heard we actually are interviewing one of your countrywomen later in this same episode. And she, when she found out I was talking to you, she said, you have to ask him about his frilly cuff. And at first I thought she was talking about maybe some attribute of your wardrobe, but you have your own rose called the frilly cuff. I was searching around for something to call it and I felt that it looked like a frilly cuff. So it is. Um, and it gives me great pleasure when you say to people, um, have you sniffed my frilly cuff? Because it doesn't sound quite right, does it? There was something, there's an element of innuendo there. It's with Peter Beale's roses. It's actually a very, very reliable rose, particular very arresting carmine. And I have it on the entire back wing of the house in these wonderful sort of bosomy clouds at the bottom of wisteria, because obviously wisteria, you know, have very little detail up to a certain height. But when they're all going together, when the volume's totally turned up on everything in the garden, and we've got the uh, wonderful mauve lilac of the wisteria coming down to the carmine of the, the Lawrence's frilly cuff, it is like one of the late queen mother's hats. It's, it's that, uh, uh, that exciting. I would wager it's even more beautiful from what I have seen. My garden, um, the majority of my garden is from the uh, from about 1610. We keep coming across bits that are a little bit earlier because the old, old bit of the house, in fact, the bit I'm sitting in now, is probably from the 1580s, but we're not entirely sure. But no, the garden has been one of the, the most wonderful pleasures. And, and now that we're all here, you know, both daughters moved back here with their husbands. We've got grandchildren. We've got, you know, it all going on, as they say. And without the garden, I don't know what we do. I mean, you know, we, we have a lovely lake. We have a series of those sort of very traditional Cotswold garden rooms, uh, which I've made sure I've decorated in a very un-Cotswold way, obviously. But uh, we are extraordinarily lucky. All we lack is weather, you know, a bit of sunshine. That is the one drawback to England, I guess, if there if there had to be one. I do want to go back to the show for a moment. You're, you're working with these people who have come into a large sum of money, whether it's inheritance or the lottery. What is some consistent advice you give these people when they're looking for a new house? Irritatingly, they're very bad at taking my advice because I'm forever just saying, you know, listen, just blow it all. You know, let's just get on a plane and go to Vegas and have fun. And they go, no, 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 I want to buy a house. You go, oh, for goodness sake. You know, and then I'll say things like, well, can't we at least buy a Gothic Folly? Or... Uh, some houseboat that we could, you know, attach sails of Tyrian purple. But no, these really very, very monumentally sensible people uh, want to buy lovely family houses in which to bring up their lovely families. I mean, one of the things that I, you know, as I say, one of the big things that I have been doing throughout the series is to ensure that I'm showing them what I feel are an extended gamut of options. You know, there is forever that kind of very straightforward shopping list of it needs so many bedrooms, it needs so many bathrooms, it needs parking. But I do like the idea of saying to people, this has got one bedroom less than you're potentially asking for. But just look at the garden or look at the situation or look at the view. I think it's very important because I, I think a lot of these people have not really been in a position in a situation where they've really looked at property before. Some of them, this is the first time they've ever bought a house, you know, they've been in rented accommodation. So a lot of that comes with a bit of baggage. It's a sense that you've got to do it like everybody else does it. And I'm inevitably very keen to, to you know, allow them to taste the forbidden fruits of doing it for themselves. So far, most of them go for the sensible option. I'm not going to lie. They do. There's something um, very charming about it, though, because um, we know the show is a spinoff. There's an American version of My Lottery Dream Home. And there's obviously a lot of cultural differences between the two shows and the priorities the winners have. What's what's the biggest difference you've observed in, in terms of how Europeans tend to approach a windfall like this and how Americans? Well, I think, I think I mean, obviously, the big thing is the fact that everyone's tripping over their stiff upper lip. You know, there's, there's absolutely no body slam going on. But I think the other thing is that the, just the level 
of detail about things like an area because I, I i too know the american show and it's it's much more sort of relaxed and friendly and hey we want this and hey we want that and this is what we're looking for. my lot seem to be coming back to us with with it's i want to be in that part of hertfordshire where the hurricanes hardly ever happen you know you, it's, it's all really very kind of information heavy but one of the things i do like is that it's very easy to watch this and think well you know look at these brits and their immovable faces and their poor dental work but, you know, I, I do feel very strongly that we really get to know these guys very, very well. And there's a surprise by, uh, at how honest they are, how open they are, how fascinating they are. And I think for a show like this, which is essentially, you know, we have an expression in this country, which is about um, uh, twitching the lace cut. You know, you're just looking out of the window and sort of trying not to see, uh, be seen as you uh, see people. Um, and this show is kind of the other way around. You know, you're looking in. Um, seeing how people live. Um, and I think you really want to get to know them very well. And I think we do that in this programme in a very surprising way, despite all of that reserve, despite all of that Britishness. And they're not as forthcoming in the first 50, 50 seconds, but actually, as you know, the confidence develops and as you get to know them, it becomes much, much more interesting. You really are. You have such a talent for making people feel comfortable and, and drawing them out of their shells. That's simple. That's gin. And, um, you know, genuinely, it's such a social leveler. It's an opener of all doors. That's the part we're not seeing before every show is everyone throwing back a G&T. Uh, one of my oldest friends um, married an Englishman and, and made the move to your country. And whenever she and her husband come back to the States, he always is so fascinated by the, the way we live here. And the well, he's always like, you've got more bathrooms rooms in your house, then, uh, then I know what to do with. In your opinion, is there anything that, that Europeans have in their homes that we might find strange here in the States and, and vice versa? Like what do American homes have or prioritize? Yeah. I mean, one of the big things that Europeans have that, that I don't think you find so much from uh, in America is mold. You know, everywhere you go in the old world, uh, everything is rotting, basically. The, no, it is interesting because I did um, training spaces in America after doing changing rooms. So I, I was very much thrown in at the deep end with, with decorating. And scale is a, an easy one, I think. It, and, but not just the scale of the house, because actually that's contracting. It's like the scale of developments, the scale of roads. Certainly in the United Kingdom, the majority of the, the houses that we've got are constrained by very historical boundaries. You know, you, you, you know if you, you look deeply, it can go all the way back to the Romans. And also, of course, the majority of the houses in Britain were built between 1880 and 1930. So they have a very sort of set footprint. And it is things like bathrooms that are always the worry. You know, bathrooms were something that were always rather tapped on. Sometimes they weren't even included at all, which explains so much about how the English smell and possibly a lot to do with the mould. Whereas, of course, America, and this has always been the big thing. I mean, I can remember when, um, you know, Nancy Lancaster was, was decorating in the 1930s. Her big thing was, you know, central heating and, and indoor plumbing. It, it always felt like such a, uh, an American innovation of comfort and hygiene. But I think, I think one of the big things is that the British particularly, when they are being independent spirited, they are very independent in the way that they decorate. They have a very strong perception of their home being their castle, of where they live as being an, a, a, an opportunity to express their, their personality. And actually, one of the funny things is that it's very easy to look at a traditional British street and feel that everybody's the same from the outside, but actually inside, oh my giddy arts. You can go from anything from Austin Powers to, you know, third century Roman centurions if you're really, really lucky. And I think that that's rather lovely. And I think this is one of the things as well that comes out in the series that we, you know, we're meeting people that are so different, that have such different takes on taste that, you know, have such different ways of expressing who they want to be. And I think in America, I think that that palette is possibly not as broad. I think that, you know, because of the density of history that surrounds us, there's, it allows people to be a little bit more independent sometimes with their decorating. So your work has taken you all over the world, as you've mentioned. Are there things that no matter where you live, no matter where you are, that make home home for you? Obviously, the, 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 the constants tend to be things like technology. I mean, one of the interesting things in Britain now is that technology, for instance, the television is becoming very uh, much more polite within the way that rooms are decorated. It used to be this sort of enormous monolith, like the beginning of 2001 Space Odyssey. But now it's, it's becoming disguised as 
paintings, there's pictures, it's becoming part of bookshelves. And I think that's that goes throughout the technology. I mean, we're, we're definitely looking at homes becoming much more human, which of course is bizarre because we are living in the future, for goodness sake. Here we are, 2021. You know, we're actually the other side of Blade Runner. And yet, you know, very little of that stuff is happening. In fact, you know, our homes are, if anything, looking as they have done for most of the 20th century. You know, dominant design styles are taken from the 20th century rather than the future, which I find fascinating. Although, of course, you could argue that the particularly things like, like 20th century modern, that was a futuristic style. But w- when you look at the, the, the way that trends are evolving at the moment in Britain, it's ultimately coming back to a huge sense of tradition. We've got uh, chintz making an enormous revival, pattern making an enormous revival, you know, uh, the, the kind of decorating that defined comfort, for sure, but also, you know, travel, intellect, eclecticism. These are all incredibly important things. Now that we're talking about trends, I want to get your thoughts in one of our favorite segments called Defend the Trend, where we give you a current design trend and you give us your thoughts on it. This week, we're talking about grand millennial style. So if you've heard of this, it's very much, you know, taking Ikea furniture and marrying it with, you know, what would be considered grandma style, ruffles, needlepoint, you know, patterns on patterns on patterns. What do you think of this trend? You know, is it here to stay or is grand millennial actually bland millennial? It's definitely not bland. Uh, the interesting thing is, of course, it is there to stay for as long as it's needed. Where do trends come from? And actually, they don't come from design. They come from the economy. There's a thing called the Hemline Index, which is fascinating, which is to do with the fact that when, when economies are challenged, when they are not going well, uh, skirts get longer. Taste becomes more reflective. Taste becomes more retro, more vintage. When economies are booming, when countries feel very confident about themselves, hemlines get very short and you get this sort of, you know, fast moving, poppy modernism. So obviously, you know, this grand millennial that you're referring to, um, this is a very retro style. This is an incredibly deep, dark evocation of, you know, you're calling it grandma or it might be Auntie Rita, but it's someone in our past who we have an enormous amount of fondness for. And we kind of would like society to go back to that point. This is what this is absolutely all about. It has its roots in Hollywood Regency, um, which I've always been fascinated by because Hollywood Regency is what was happening at more or less the same time as mid-century modern was happening in Europe. And Hollywood Regency was was inspired very directly by Italy and by uh, Giaponti, by Fornasetti. And it, it, it is about modernising opulence. It is about taking a richness like damasks, uh, like those particular colour palettes, teal, mustard, raspberry, antique shapes, antique forms, Venetian mirrors, paintings, old uh, still lives, but actually either supersizing them or minimising them or straightening them or constraining them. And you really see it in, in decorators like Dorothy Draper. In the UK, you've got people like David Hicks, who was doing it very well. But actually, this was a style that was incredibly attractive to uh, these very voluptuous figureheads in our family, like Auntie Rita, who used to have a little bit too much to drink and uh, you know had some very unseemly boyfriends. But actually, we were immensely fond of her because she was so much more fun than our possibly straight-laced husbands. And she was the one with the tiki-tiki cocktail cabinet and the pineapple ice bucket, all of these things we are obsessed by at the moment. And so it's very interesting, I think, always a good exercise to give a trend a personality, give it a name, give it a thought, give it who is it. And I think that as we are maturing as designers, we are deliberately using something like Grand Millennial as a way of showing our own independent taste. So much of Grand Millennial style would have been perceived as being bad taste, as being kitsch, as being pastiche, so particularly by our parents. So actually by assimilating it, by you know deliberately doing things in our homes which uh, a previous generation perceived as being bad taste is a way of establishing independence, but also as a way of saying, well, actually, mom and dad, I don't think you necessarily got it right socially and economically. I don't like your politics. I prefer Auntie Rita. 
I prefer the the, the great fun Apronula Delugeant, who was much more open to ideas, who was much more open to people, much less judgy. So I think Grand Millennial is ultimately the most magnificent weaponized anti-wasp style you could think of. It, it's like driving a tractor through Ralph Laurent. And I think that that is what makes it attractive. There's a youngness to it, even though it is essentially a retro style, even though it is essentially something that is very, very much inspired, if not derived from the past. I haven't even said whether I like it or not. Oh, you did it. Do you like it? But that's totally irrelevant. If you like it, I love it. <laughs> I, I love seeing a return to bringing some personality and uniqueness back into decor. That's what makes me really happy when people don't feel like they all need to have the same millennial pink sofa. And No, and, and actually what, what is fascinating about Grand Millennium is that it nearly always comes from a place of great independence. So I'm immensely supportive of that. Because in fact, there are no real trends within it because you are there to make it up yourself. Everything else is you know, yeah, well, that's the colour that everyone's using and that's very Hamptons and that's very Montauk Modern and that's the piece of furniture that's and, you know, that's the print and that's the particular linen. It's very prescribed. But this is like, oh, holy hell, you're going to put that painting of a clown in there. Well, okay, that kind of works. And wow, this, you know, ruffle edging on that zebra skin cushion. Because you're doing it, it sort of works. And actually, one of the lovely things about Grand Millennial is that you can't do it uh, half-cocked, as we say. Um, you can't go in with the volume half-turned down. The minute it runs out of steam, it stops working. Whereas in just about any other style that you can think of, you know, soft, modern, dum-dum-dum-dum, you know, actually the least noise it makes the more successful it seems to be. Agree 100%. Well, Lawrence, this has just been so delightful. I want you to tell everyone where they can find you if they want to see more of your work and where can we see My Lottery Dream Home International? Second archway down underneath Waterloo Bridge. I'll be standing there in a pair of fishnets uh, twirling my pink patent handbag should anyone be interested. You can ferret me out very easily at llb.co.uk. We'll take you, take you to the epicenter of planet LLB, for goodness sake. Should you be brave enough? You can see the frilly cuff. Oh, yeah, no, the, the rose is in there, for sure. Uh, it was launched at uh, Chelsea a couple of years ago, actually. Can't sniff it, though, because it's the internet. Sorry. My Lottery Dream Home International premieres on Friday the 2nd at 8pm. So I suggest that you remove any tight or constricting clothing, find a chaise long on which to long yourself and pour something effervescent and lovely and just simply enjoy it and me. Uh, I, I, will, I have made a, a, a bold decision, which is to ensure that you are all entranced and distracted by what I'm wearing and by as much as what I'm saying. So the thing is that you particularly, the first program was great fun actually in, in um, Birmingham. Really nice couple, really nice winner. He, uh, uh, he won Who Wants to Be a Millionaire. Well, he didn't, didn't get to the very end of Who Wants to Be a Millionaire, but he is using his money very, very wisely. He's a teacher. But it has some of the nicest, really very designed houses, which I think people are going to be very excited by, very inspirational. Agree. Well, this has just been a pleasure, and I hope that you come back again. Uh, Marianne, my darling, I am feeling positively post-coital after that. Um, I can't <laughs> tell you how many of my enjoyment synapses been tickled. You have you've been an absolute magnificent host and a, a, a rare and ravishing vision against your grey wall as well. Oh my goodness. You just I'm just we've got to stop. This is getting ridiculous. <laughs> yeah we gotta stop. <laughs> to say I have some like serious grandma tendencies already. So I'm, I'm feeling the grand millennial trend. Anyway, what an incredible conversation with Lawrence. I mean, what a character. I want to know, Brad, what would you spend your lottery winnings on? Would it be more comic books? Oh, man. Yeah, I think I mean, so <laughs> if you win the lottery, you don't just, you know, you, you do like, three or four things, right? You do Family, you buy stuff for your family, you buy stuff for your house, you buy stuff for other people, and then you. Once I got to the fourth one, me, yeah, it'll be more comic books. Comic books and video games. Sometimes we need to put 
a, a full photo of your comic book wall in the show notes so that people can really understand the first class nervery that we have going on right now. I'm proud of that wall. Let's put it out on social. Let's let's do it. It's beautiful. Put it on HGTV.com. So I have the power to do that. I am going to be completely boring and say I would save it, which is so like I'm you just, wouldn't spend it on anything. I feel, no, that's not true. But I just feel like nine year old Marianne would be so disappointed in that answer. Like I would definitely do some traveling and I would do it right. Like first class, you know, at least comfort plus treat yourself a little. Where would you go? If you won the lottery tomorrow, where would you go? If I won the lottery tomorrow, I would really want to go to Asia. But I, again, I really want to do it right. Like I want to go, I want to get a great guide. I want like, I've always really wanted to go to Thailand, Japan, China, um, Singapore, but I really want to do it right. I want to go with like, I kind of want to have like a man on the inside who can show me all like, I want all the best food, like the locals only. I want, you know, a really like tailored boutique experience. Be like Anthony Mordain, but Marianne Canada. Exactly. That is exactly the vibe I'm going for. But maybe with less, like, I don't know. I feel like he would end up eating something that, that might be a bridge too far. But yeah, that's, I would really want to travel to that part of the world, but I want to feel like I'm in like really good hands. I don't want to end up like disappointing myself and, and eating at like the Singapore McDonald's. Like I want, I want the good stuff. But you, we've already just, you first, you said you wouldn't spend it. And now you're saying you would totally spend it. So, and then, yeah, that's, I mean, that is a window into my soul because you either like are very thrifty and responsible with your money, or you spend a hundred thousand dollars on a trip to Singapore. <laughs> Perfect. You just got to treat yourself and bring in your producer, anyway. Brad with you. Yes. Yes. Of course. Obviously we would record the podcast on the road. Perfect. From, from the Singapore McDonald's. <laughs> what a treat. All right. Anyway, speaking of a treat, I have a treat for our listeners. I have the pleasure of chatting with Jane Perrone, host of the On The Ledge podcast, and another Brit. Like we are really committing to this theme, I have to say. We had this amazing discussion about her passion for houseplants, and she gave some great advice on bringing plants into her home. So take it away, Jane. Jane, it's so lovely to see you. Good to see you and your smiling face and your lovely yellow top. Very cheering. Well, Jane, it's so lovely to have you on today um, talking to us about, you know, putting down roots, pun intended. You've been gardening, tending to plants since you were really young. Can you tell everyone a little bit about yourself, where you found that love of plants and how you started your podcast on the ledge? I certainly can. So it begun at an early age. I would like to say that it's in my DNA because I do have uh, on both sides of the family, people who are into gardening, who I'm sure I got my gardening genes from. And so from, yeah, from as long back as I can remember, I was growing plants and collecting plants and being given plants. And at the start, it was oftentimes things like cacti and succulents that I used to pick up at, I don't know if you have, do you have jumble sales in America? Do you have jumble sales? Do you know what a jumble sale is? Yes, we would, we would call it a yard sale or a garage sale. Yeah, that kind of thing. So we'd pick those up. I'd pick those up and uh, I would go to my local garden center and pick things up as well. And people would start giving me plants to revive. So yeah, it's been a lifelong thing. Uh, but I just, for whatever reason, I didn't think about going into horticulture as a, as a teenager. I wanted to be a journalist from a very young age. And so I went into news journalism and I worked at newspapers and then I ended up with The Guardian in London. And for the first half of my career there, I was like hard news, breaking news, like, you know, and it was the 2000 to 2007 era. Now that was quite a busy news period if you if you think back. So that was quite hectic. And then when I had my daughter, I ended up uh, taking maternity leave and I came back in a new job as gardening editor. So that was a really big step change for me. And I just managed to channel my passion for gardening into my journalism, which was an awesome combination. And 
I got into podcasts around the time, like everybody else who's into podcasts, Serial. We all started with Serial, didn't we? Um, although I did listen to a few gardening podcasts before that, but Serial really kind of opened me up to the opportunities of podcasting. And I did a podcast for The Guardian about gardening and that ended and I was kind of bereft. I really missed podcasting. And I just had this brainwave and thought, why don't I do a podcast about houseplants? Because that's my true passion in life. My family are sick of hearing me talk about it. They just don't want to hear anything else. So I'm thinking, I am going to do this and reach out to the worldwide houseplant community, which is what I've done through On The Ledge. And it's just enormous fun. It's That's the best thing about it is it's just great to have this community of people who like listening to me chatter on. So Jane, you're based in the UK, but I know you have moved quite a bit. And, you know, in today's episode, we are talking a bit about how to put down roots, whether it's people who are moving because they have come into a bit of money or just are facing a move. Have you ever had to move your plants with you? Because I moved a couple of years ago and we were only moving 10 minutes down the road. And it was so stressful for me moving, especially my large plants. You know, have you ever, have you ever had to undertake moving your You've quite a collection of plants. <laughs> well, the last time I moved, I didn't have as many as I have now, but I do remember that move being quite traumatic because we'd hired movers who were going to literally do all the packing for us and do the whole thing because we had a young child at the time and it was just like, this is too much. Let's pay somebody to do it, uh, which was all very good. And they came around and kind of assessed what they thought we had, but you know what it's like with garden stuff. And you're like, yeah, that wormery's going. And yeah, that compost bin. And they're like, huh. So on the morning of the move, they massively underestimated how much stuff we had. And they had to go and call another van to to get the rest of the stuff in. And they're like, I, they were like, what's in here? I'm like, well, it's, it's, it's a wormery. So like, there's kind of like worms and food. They're like, what? So it was just this real kind of traumatic thing for the movers of discovering they were moving all these very odd things. But I do hear from listeners very often on the show who are moving across the country. And I'm talking about the USA here. So that's major league or moving to other countries as well and wondering how to transport their plants. So it's a really interesting issue. And it's hard because you know, especially in these days, now that we're into the huge specimen plants, you know, the fiddle leaf figs and the banana leaves, and we're into the trailing plants that are just all over the place. You know, if you try to move a string of hearts or a string of pearls, you're going to have to be very careful. Otherwise, you're literally going to be spending the next week trying to untangle that thing. So yeah, there's a lot, a lot of things you can do that will make it easier. Uh, but it's all about preparation, as with most things in life, right? preparation is key. Get your packing materials ready. Prioritize packing materials for those plants. Um, and and just, just thinking about ways of protecting the fragility of your plants because, you know, plants are quite fragile and making sure that you've set aside time to move them. So either maybe leaving them to the end of the move or doing them at the start of the move so that it's not kind of mixed in with the hauling boxes bit, which I find incredibly stressful. Um, so I know somebody who's just moved house who has an awful lot of really large plants and they've had the luxury of leaving them at their old place for a week. And now they've settled into the new place. They're now moving them across, which is very sensible if you can afford to do that. Yes. I mean, you mentioned the um, the trailing plants, you know, are, th are there some plants that just don't travel well that you should just consider giving away if you're moving? <laughs> well, I think those are definitely up there. I mean, if you've ever bought one of those uh, string of pearls or string of hearts online through mail order and it's arrived, it's a nightmare because they usually curl them around the top of the pot. It's very difficult because the leaves uh, on both of those kind of hook around one another. So you end up with all these strings and the, the stems are incredibly wiry and thin and fragile. So if you, I mean, I would never give my string of pearls away, like nobody's having that plant. But what I would say is take some cuttings maybe before you start moving it, just so you've got an insurance policy. And this is true of any plant, whether you're moving or not, have an insurance policy because you never know when there's something can go wrong. But you can, you know, with something like the string of hearts, what I'd recommend doing is not curling it around the top of the pot because that way it's going to get really messed up. If you can, and I know this sounds incredibly 
needy. But what you need to do is get some bubble wrap and literally lay the the trailing stems out and wrap them in bubble wrap individually so they're not going to get tied around each other. And that way you've hopefully got some hope then of keeping them separate. And then because bubble wrap's flexible, you could then curl it round and ease it together to make it more uh, easy to transport. But yeah, just it, getting them in a line <laughs> is, is really important if you can. Um, and the other thing you can do with plants like that is you can, as I say, take the cuttings and then you can sometimes fit, get a plastic or a cardboard tube. If you've got them climbing up an obelisk or a trailing thing, I would try not to take that apart. I would try to transport them attached to that structure, but give them a nice tube shaped piece of cardboard to, to fit inside so they're not getting bashed. Because that's the main concern is that those beautiful leaves don't all get bruised and damaged as they so easily will. Yes. Well, and so many plants too, I do try to to remind people, if the worst happens, if part of the plant breaks off, you can propagate so many. I I had a monstera get almost completely destroyed. It had no leaves left. And now it is, you would never know to look at it. It's just come back better than ever. So on that note, you know, we, we've moved in, we've moved our plants. Some did get a little bruised, a little beat up. You know, what should I be looking out for? And and what are some tips to maybe nurse something back to health that's gotten a little a little stressed out on the move? Well, you're right. I mean, despite my clear uh, nitpicking way of packing these things, the truth is actually a lot of these plants will regrow really nicely. You know, people get very worried, especially new plant owners get very worried about, oh, this leaf got bent and damaged and is how is it going to fix itself? Well, the sad news is it's not going to fix itself. That leaf, unlike human skin, which can obviously be cut and, and scar over and then heal, plant leaves don't work that way. So once a plant leaf is damaged, it's going to stay damaged. That's not to say that it's not... Um, still valuable to the plant, but aesthetically, it's not going to change its looks. Um, so don't worry too much if your leaves do get a bit bashed around. The main thing you'll be looking out for is that the plant's gone through a period of stress. So anytime a plant goes through stress, it immediately becomes more of a magnet for pest problems. Pests, I mean, I'm there's a lot of science behind this, but basically pests are attracted to plants that are already undergoing stress, which is why the best defense against pests is to make sure your houseplants are super healthy. So when you're looking at that plant that's been through a stressful experience of moving location to your new home, possibly not being in the same environment that it was in before, you need to think about giving it its best possible life that you can. And that might be something as simple for a plant that likes high humidity as just putting it in a massive clear plastic bag. So if you've got one of those dry cleaning bags or something that's clear and you've got a plant that's looking a bit sad after a move and it's a high humidity plant like those beautiful anthuriums and the calatheas and the marantas, just get one of those big bags, put the whole pot, the whole, all of the whole thing into that bag, blow some air into it and seal it up. And then gradually give it a bit of time in this kind of lovely spa type environment. And then you can gradually start introducing more air. And that way the plant will hopefully sort of settle back into life and recover quite nicely. That's great. It's like making a little tiny greenhouse, an individual greenhouse just for that plant. Exactly. I mean, people, visitors will look at you strangely because they'll be like, why is that plant in a bag? But hey, it's okay. Uh, and the other thing that's really good for if you do suffer from um, pests, the spider mite is one of the main pests that houseplant owners face. And that actually is a great treatment for spider mite is stick them in a bag, increase the humidity. That's the thing that spider mites don't like. So um, that's also useful for that. So yeah, if any big clear plastic bags without holes in come in my house, I'm immediately like, I'm having that. Thank you. <laughs> So they're very useful things. Just stash that away. And it's great. It, keep, it keeps it out of the landfill as well. Exactly. I think that's a really great tip. Are there any other um, tips you have for acclimating plants to a new environment, whether you've brought it home from the nursery or made a move? So the one of the things that you need to be aware of, as I said, when you're moving, it's going to be a slightly different environment. So just keep a really close eye on that plant. 
when you first bring it home, whether it's from the shop or bringing it into your new home after a move. If it's come from a shop and it's coming being added to your houseplant collection. I would recommend quarantining plants away from your other plants where possible. I realize, you know, if you're living in a really small environment, that's tough. But if you can, put them in a separate room from the rest of your houseplants because unfortunately, pests may make themselves known. Pests can come in on your existing, uh, on your new houseplants. That could be mealybugs, it could be spider mites, it could be good old aphids. And sometimes they're not visible until the plants had a few days to settle in. So observe and quarantine if you can before you put them next to your other plants, because that way you're saving yourself an awful lot of work. Uh, <laughs> and if you've got plants that have come from the nursery, the other thing to do is to take them out of their pots and just have a look at what's happening at soil level. Really important. Have a look at those roots have a look at the potting mix they're in. Are they in the right potting mix? If you buy a cactus and you get it home and you take it out of the pot and it's in a really kind of watery, claggy kind of potting mix, then it's probably a really good idea to shake off all of that potting mix and repot it in something that's much more gritty and free draining, which the cactus will be much happier in. So do a little bit of, of checking as soon as you get the plant home and then observe until you're happy that the plant is healthy and then you can kind of put it with your other plants. I think we're all well-versed in quarantining at this point. We need to quarantine, <laughs> yeah. quarantine our plants as well. Um, that's great advice though, because I think a lot of people, especially that that don't know a lot about houseplants, you assume that if it's coming from a nursery or coming from a shop, that it is in the best soil for the plant, but that's just not always the case. Um, well, Jane, before we let you go, I would just love to talk a little bit more about how houseplants really fit into your sense of of home. You know, has that changed and evolved over the years? Well, it has. I would say I've got more pl plants than ever now. I mean, making a podcast about plants at the end of every episode, you have a big list of plants that you want to get hold of when you've been talking to a specialist grower. And also I have lots of lovely listeners who enable me massively by sending me plants. So I was looking for a long time for a particular snake plant, which is widely available in the US, but not available here, called uh, Bantel Sensation. And um, a lovely listener said, listeners in the US kept saying, I've got this, so I can send it to you. I'm like, you can't send it to me. You're in the wrong country. And that's very kind of you. But you know, it's not going to work. But uh, finally, I managed to get one through a plant swap here. Uh, so I have a lot of plants. What I would say is when I've been growing my collection over the years, it's reflected different times in my life. So when my children were tiny and crawling about, I didn't have so many plants because it's there's just too much potential for soil to go everywhere they were trained at a young age not to eat houseplant leaves. So that's good. But yeah, I had less plants then and the plants I did have tended to be smaller and up on high shelves. Now that they're older, things are sort of starting to cultivate in other places and I have more time for them too. But for me, if I go into a house and there's no plants there, or if I'm on holiday and I'm staying in a holiday cottage and there's no plants, it feels really strange to me. It doesn't feel right. There's something wrong. And I keep sort of thinking, oh, you know, one of Australitia would look really good in that corner. And whenever I'm watching TV, if there's, you know, interesting plants in the background on a drama show, I'll be looking and seeing what they are. So I find myself associating plants with being at home and being comfortable in my environment. And I just love, I'm not a person who ever sits still. I'm constantly moving. So for me, just to be able to look over and see my Swiss cheese plant and just look at it and go, oh, new leaf coming and potter about my plants really makes my, my house feel like a home to me. I mean, I don't think it does for the rest of my family. They're not that interested in plants, but they're very tolerant. And also, they don't tend to notice unless something really dramatic changes, like a massive plant comes in. My husband will be sort of like three months after, you know, something's arrived. He'll go, is, is that new? And I'll be like, um, no, no, it's not. It's been around here for ages. So it's he's pretty tolerant, actually, of my uh, many house plants. But the other thing I would say about plants, and I try not to be drawn into this, is when you look on social media these days, lots of people look at 
the plants on social media and get very intimidated and think, well, I haven't got like a room like that. And I don't have all of those beautiful tropical aroids. And, you know, I've just got one cactus and they feel very intimidated that their collection isn't up to scratch. But I would say, like, don't be led by looking at what other people are growing. Grow things that make you happy. And that might be, and there's a right number of plants for every person. And that might be one plant or it might be 500. And find your right number of plants that you can take care of and that give you joy without being overwhelming. And that that's when you hit the sweet spot with your houseplant collection. Yes. It's like, keep your eyes on your own paper. That's what I always tell people. <laughs> so true. Well, Jane, this has been such a delight. I hope we can have you on again. You really have such a, a depth of knowledge. Um, can you remind everyone listening where they can find you? Yeah, On The Ledge is available on um, all the pod apps you can think of pretty much. So the usual places like Spotify and Apple Podcasts and my website, janeperone.com. You can just go and listen from there as well. And there's really detailed show notes for every episode and thematic guides to the podcast. So you can just find the subjects you're interested in. So that's the best place to go, uh, janeperone.com. Great. And you can catch me coming up on Jane's podcast on The Ledge. We're talking all about growing citrus indoors. So you guys don't want to miss that. Thank you so much, Jane. My pleasure. Oh my gosh, you guys, I think I am like one British guest away from me pulling like a full Madonna and adopting a British accent. I mean, let's be honest, I was a theater kid and it was touch and go there for a minute. I hope you all have enjoyed this episode of HDTV Obsessed because I have just been fully delighted the entire time. It's been a dream to join you as your host. Don't forget to tune in to My Lottery Dream Home International Fridays at 8 p.m. on HGTV with the incredible Lawrence Llewellyn Bowen. And trust me, head over to the show notes at hgtv.com slash podcast so you can really get the full effect of what we're dealing with here. I mean, it's the clothes, it's the decor, it's the hair. It's, it's just really... It's the full package. And while you're at it, subscribe to the On The Ledge podcast with Jane Perrone. She was just, I don't know, she's so comforting and knowledgeable. And she just makes me want to fill my house with even more plants, which frankly is dangerous. And hey, I'm the new guy here. So if you enjoyed our episode today, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. And don't forget to follow HGTV Obsessed wherever you get your podcasts. I'll see you next Thursday. 